Okay, well, welcome, everyone. Um, and I'm really, really pleased to see this kind of turnout um, for this talk. It's really, really good. Um, I'm also incredibly pleased to welcome Daniel Miller here for uh, this public lecture at the invitation of the Department of Sociology and the British uh, Journal of Sociology. I don't know how much to read into the fact that one of the most eminent and prolific um, anthropologists currently writing is here at the invitation of two sociology institutions. Um, but it, if nothing else, it's testimony to the incredible impact and influence of Danny's work on sociology. Um, one of the problems with introducing um, Danny is always that he has written so ridiculously much about just about everything that you can write about that it's really hard to be brief. Um, I'll try to be, nonetheless. Um, Danny's work spans, um, firstly, absolutely foundational work on material culture, materiality, objectification, um, and approaches to the role of objects and their transaction in everyday life and the reproduction of the social world. Um, he's been enormously influential in the area of consumption studies, and particularly theory of shopping, which, as far as I'm concerned, in my own work in this area, rewrote the book on consumption. Um, work on political economy and value. Um, that's before we get to his incredibly foundational work on media and digital culture, internet, mobile phones, Facebook, webcams, and now um, a five-year European Research Council grant on the comparative studies of new social media. So things like denim are just a sideline. Uh, work on migration, transnationality, and the family, and finally the work um, that he'll be addressing tonight on clothing and dress, um, starting with work with Mukulika Banerjee on the sari, and now this, um, which is part of extensive um, work on the area of denim. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Daniel Miller. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you to the, the sociology department and the journal for the kind invitation. Um, I hope that for many of you, um, that the title, which otherwise would be a bit clunky, um, was evident as a homage to a book by the great sociologist Zimmel um, called The Philosophy of Money. And it's a favoured book of mine. Um, and it, one of the things about it is that it takes money, uh, the quintessential object of economics, but actually what it then does is it in some ways extracts it from that context and actually uses it um, to make a wonderful book about social science and indeed um, all the way up to philosophy. It was also one of the first books to really take seriously the study of consumption and particularly sort of close to my heart, um, the study of material culture. And really what I'm doing today I hope is in this kind of spirit um, of that earlier work. In fact, this talk is, I think these days it's called a mashup of uh, three books. Um, there's the book on blue jeans that I worked with uh, Sophie Woodward on. Um, there's the book on uh, uh, global denim, which is also done with Sophie. Um, and there's a book of my own called Consumption and Its Consequences, which is revisiting um, work that I've been doing on consumption for a long time, but also looking to consequences for areas like climate change, um, which I hadn't previously worked on and I, I, I hope I will get to. Um, 
It's also, however, intended as a case study in this area of material culture. And what I see material culture as doing is taking one of, I think, the best elements of the discipline of anthropology, under whose auspices we work, and extending it. And what I like about, um, about that particular aspect is what I call its extremism. That is to say, this is not kind of middle ground kind of hypothesis testing. Um, Anthropologists traditionally have um, been uh, working for 15 months, um, 20 months in one particular place. Very intensive, scholarly, qualitative research of the very particular. But at the same time, they've always retained the ambition that they will address the other extreme, that they can say things about philosophy and generalizations about social science and the nature of humanity, etc. And then the question is, how do you actually put those two extremes back together? And in a way, I would always argue that anthropology is doing something important, in a sense, for um, modern life itself. Because ever since Hegel, there has been the issue that we have seen the ever-increase in particularity and specificity on the one hand, and in universality and abstraction on the other. And many of the problems that we have in this day and age, including in finance, etc., are because of areas of high abstraction that seem to have lost their moorings, lost their talking back down to the specifics, the everyday um, that we otherwise live. So how can you keep these two things into a conversation? And the problem is that so much of academic work um, has the, the scholarly study, the more parochial interest, and then at the sort of conclusion, you cite sort of three meta-theorists, you know, Bauman or Baudrillard or somebody, and that's not it. Um, what I want to do is show how we can actually go step by step from the empirical inquiry and gradually start to show how you are making these bigger claims and where these bigger claims are founded in that qualitative work. So the intention is to make it a, a case study in material culture. Now, why specifically um, was I working in, in blue jeans, in denim? Um, on one hand, I thought it was a good example um, of what we've called the blindingly obvious. Um, something that is so much just kind of in front of your face that you actually don't seem to see it. And you get that in clothing studies. Clothing studies is bizarre. Um, in the sense that you find the clothing that nobody ever wears, the sort of designer stuff, and there's reams of writings about this. And then you start the stuff that actually everybody wears all the time, and there's practically nothing about it. And that seems odd. So the blindingly obvious seems like a sort of a challenge to the likes of anthropology, that we need to actually take this on board. And when we first started this work, what I did was took advantage of the fact that I used to get invitations say, to Beijing or Rio or whatever. And when I would get to the city where I was going to give a lecture, I would start by going on a street corner and I would look at the first hundred people that passed me by. And as long as I wasn't arrested for staring at people's asses, I was able to come to the conclusion that actually in the majority of countries today, um, round about 50% of the population on any given day are wearing blue jeans. But I didn't know why. And that's really all there is. It's just the simple question, why? Follow the practice. Follow what people do. Now, blue jeans. Blue and denim. Um, historically, of course, we have an indication as to why those two things um, should have the resonance that they may have. Um, the blue is indigo. 
There was a wonderful article a few years ago by the anthropologist Mick Telsey called Redeeming Indigo, in which he pointed out just how important a product that was historically. And if you go to prehistory, of course, indigo is one of those natural dyes that you can fix without a mordant. Probably in prehistory it was almost as common as it is now. Um, but it remained common thereafter. And he talks about Napoleon's army requiring 600,000 uniforms a year, which meant 150 tonnes of indigo. He talks about the way Haiti, a place we would normally think of as a colony because of sugar plantation, was actually there because of indigo plantation. Um, So there have been times when it has a real resonance. But then chemical dyes came in, and actually... If you look historically, um, it's come and gone. If you look at Renaissance pictures, it's not particularly indigo. So the point that we understand the history, but it doesn't necessarily tell us why it's expanding now. Um, the same thing with the denim. We know about the history of denim. Um, we know that um, in the 1870s, um, Levi Strauss, just before inventing structural anthropology, um, actually patented the idea of rivets. Um, in the places where jeans usually um, break. And that created the modern blue jeans, which actually hasn't changed that much ever since. Um, And we know something of the history, popular culture knows the history of um, James Dean, of uh, Marlon Brando, of the, the sort of counterculture taking of jeans, of the fact that I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, everyone seemed to be wearing jeans when they were crossing it in Americanization politics of it, etc., etc. Actually, in the book um, Global Denim, there's a very good paper by a historian called Sandra Comstock who questions that history. She actually shows that, in fact, there were all sorts of interesting things to do with labour and consumption in the 1930s, which probably are more important in the development of modern genes, um, but that's not the, the popular history. The, the proper history, as it were, is sort of being written at the moment. But the point I, is that it doesn't really tell you about the, m- the most massive expansion to blue genes is really recent, this real global expansion, the way it's moving into East Asia and South Asia and and, and places such as that. And this does not come um, simply from that history. Indeed, one of the places where I was working on um, genes was in South India, in Kerala, um, in in a place called uh, Kanur. And one of the things I found when I was talking to people there, and genes are sort of coming in at the moment and expanding, is to ask them, well, where where do you think genes come from? Um, where, Where do they originate? And the most popular theory was that they were from people who work in the mines in Germany. No idea where that came from. Or the second one was that they were Indian. But the point is, um, it was clear that this is not Americanization. If they don't know that it has any association with America, it can't be. And I don't think those kind of older connotations really um, survive anymore. So that takes you kind of so far. So um, how else can you explain why do people wear jeans? You can ask them. Material culture studies is a bit sceptical sometimes about language. We tend to think of more as legitimation often than explanation. Um, And in this case, sure, people will say, oh, genes are good in the hot or they're good in the wet. But actually, in my work, found pretty much the same number of people say it's good in the wet as bad in the wet, good in the hot, bad in the hot, etc. There's no sort of consistency. And actually, they're just cotton trousers, you know, and there's no reason for thinking that like, the colour indigo is going to have an impact on their, on, on their function. So it's not going to take you very far. I think actually the, the area that most people would turn to today, and this is I think more germane to, to the um, lecture as a whole, is really the economy. Because we tend increasingly, I think, to have, what I would rather is a kind of rather lazy take 
which is to say that if something is there as a commodity, if it's massive, if everybody is wearing it, then it surely must be something to do with capitalism, markets, businesses, advertising. People must be making money out of this, and that's why it's such a big deal. Um, and the, one of the key things about blue jeans is that it doesn't take much of a reflection to realise how utterly wrong that is. Obviously, companies do make money, they survive in the production of blue jeans. But you have to actually, to make that argument, have a notion of causation, that there is something about profitability, there is something in the logic of business that would make them want to sell blue jeans as opposed to some other clothing. And of course, the opposite is true, because the point about blue jeans, and particularly the blue jeans that are the mass blue jeans, the stuff that we are mainly studying, is they're not designer, they're not expensive, most of them are barely branded, if at all, um, and they are absolutely not the fashion item. Um, older teenagers might use it as a fashion item, most people do not. And that very, comes up very strongly in the ethnography I'm going to be talking about later. So the, the, the big expansion, if you look at the statistics of blue jeans in this country, have basically been recently Primark and Asda, the cheapest of the cheap, the nondescript blue jeans. So the mere fact that these are not fashion items, that actually we keep them longer than any other garments, we wear them more than any other garments, we don't throw them away when they're torn and faded for all sorts of reasons, um, and they do not correspond to fashion means that they are the very opposite of the clothing that would be most in the interest of business. Um, so although business has to go with it, it is very hard, I think, to make an argument that it is the cause of it. Um, and actually, very much, it's despite... I remember actually going to interview um, uh, a designer, I think it was Hugo Boss, um, and his job was to do the, um, the genes range for the next year. And, you know, he was trying to say, well, it's a special animal, it's, it's very difficult, and et cetera, et cetera. Actually, in the end, you felt quite sorry for him. Like, how the hell do you do the genes? You know, it's just genes, right? Um, so that logic doesn't work. And I think that's important for what we're trying to say about consumption. That's what I'm taking, as it were, from Zimmel. That this is not something simply coming out of the economy and its logics. Um, and if it isn't, you still have the problem. How, then, do you explain why everybody wears the stuff? Um, and that's what brings us into social science and other perspectives on consumption, um, and I think a rather important way. Now, um, the weird thing then, the first weird thing about uh, denim is that it is so ubiquitous, that it is the 50% all the way around the world. Fortunately, it's not the only weird thing about denim. Um, there's a couple more. Sophie Woodward, um, the person I did the study with, originally she did a PhD with me on um, women and their wardrobes. And um, what she did was she um, looked at people getting up in the morning. I don't know how she did the study, I never asked. Um, how they, getting up in the morning and choosing their clothes, right? And the point she makes is something you wouldn't see just in the street, which is how often people get up, go to the wardrobe, and put on reasonably interesting clothes, go to the mirror, look at the mirror, take them off again, maybe again, and then put on blue jeans and go out. <laughs> All right? um, in other words, blue jeans are our default clothing. 
Um, when you're anxious, when you're worried about the impression you made, for all sorts of reasons, they occupy this default position. And that's clearly an important thing about blue jeans. But there's a third element. And that element I can attest to myself, because it's part of my personal history. Um, you don't want to keep this image in your head too long, but imagine very long hair, flared purple trousers, uh, flowered shirts, beads, etc., etc. But also, blue jeans. A time when um, blue jeans got worn to death. And my hazy recollection was that this was all about getting stoned. And the point was that in those days you wore your jeans um, and they became soft and they became very personal. There was nothing else that, that felt the same way to you as those jeans. And you know, if your girlfriend or mother didn't burn them, you wouldn't have stopped wearing them at all. Um, But then, of course, commerce comes in and starts copying that. And what they do is they start washing the jeans with stone. It's the jeans getting stoned, let me be clear. Um, So the jeans, okay, are put in stonewash. And stonewash jeans are the faded jeans that then end up being um, the, the situation we have today when, you know, you do not go into a shop and find an item of clothing and find that it's torn and ripped and stained and faded and buy it unless it's jeans, right? Now, that's also a little weird. And this project really started when Sophie and I said, you know, one weird thing's difficult to explain. Three weird things, maybe we can see a pattern. And our argument was that what we were finding was, A, it's the most globally ubiquitous garment, but B, that history of distressing is telling you that it's also the most personal if you like, individualised garment that people associated with. And why would those two things go together? And our argument is that basically people wear jeans, amongst other reasons today, to actually feel that they are citizens of the world, precisely because it is the global garment. And you stake your claim there through wearing what can be worn absolutely anywhere. But the problem with that is that in being part of the world, you feel the danger of losing your sense of your own individuality, your own sense of personality and authenticity. So how can you both be part of the world and retain that sense of yourself that you're worried about? And what I'm arguing is, just as I said at the very beginning about Hegel, it's not just philosophers who are concerned with the world going global and also particular at the same time. Actually, we're all concerned about it. And the, one of the traditions that Levi-Strauss, the other Levi-Strauss, bequeathed us in, um, in anthropology is this idea that it's not just if you like, myths that do philosophy, but also everyday practices may actually turn out to be quite profound. And while we may not be writing philosophy we may actually be doing something in this everyday world that is, in its small way, an attempt to address these much larger issues that philosophers and social scientists um, would otherwise write about. Now, following that kind of um, initial idea about the profundity or potential profundity of blue jeans, we then embarked on two projects. One produced the book Global Denim, and it's a series of studies done in different places all around the world. And I don't, unfortunately, have time to to go into that. Um, The other was that, as anthropologists, we also decided to commit 
to doing our own in-depth ethnography of the one singular place, as anthropologists do. And we picked three nondescript streets in northwest London, and the only reason for picking them was that we were equally distant from where Sophie was living and I was living, and we didn't really care. As long as there was no good reason for picking it, that's why we wanted it, right? So it wasn't special in any way. And we worked there over um, a couple of summers, investigating um, um, in, in, in more detail, really, what was in people's wardrobes, why were they wearing what they were wearing, etc. And that's what produced um, the book called Blue Jeans. And um, you start again by talking to people and asking them about why they're wearing. I've mentioned uh, function. Another uh, reason people give for wearing blue jeans um, is comfort. And they're very comfortable. They're the most comfortable garment you've got. And it's actually an interesting term. We have a sort of chapter about it. Because what comfort does semantically is it means, A, physical comfort. The fact that these feel soft. They feel good on the legs. But most of the time they're using the word comfort, they're actually talking about social situations. I feel comfortable at that party. I don't stand out. Nobody's going to look at me. I'm not worried about things, etc. And what the word does is elide the two forms of legitimation. It makes something that is actually purely social appear as though it was kind of what sociology is called naturalisation, as though it was kind of uh, natural and, as it were, physical. Um, The third thing that people tend to say about jeans, as an explanation of why they wear it, though, I think is even more interesting. Because what they tend to say is the reason you wear blue jeans is because everything goes with blue jeans. Doesn't matter what top you want to wear, what jewellery you want to wear, what shoes you want to wear, everything goes with blue jeans. And we said, okay, that's very interesting. So then we asked people two questions. We said, okay, everything goes with blue jeans. Um, If you had jeans of a different colour, pink or green, does everything go with pink jeans? People think about it a bit, said, no, actually, you can't wear anything with pink jeans. No, blue jeans, but not pink jeans. Oh, right, fine. Now let's take the colour. If you had an indigo-coloured corduroy, can everything go with indigo-coloured corduroy? Wear anything with that? Think about it for a moment. And again, no, actually, you couldn't wear anything. So the point is, there is nothing about um, denim or indigo, right? But there is something about blue jeans such that people believe, and, and then because they believe it's true, therefore, that anything goes with them. Why and how? Well, what you find when you're looking at the blue jeans is that um, the traditional way of studying clothing in the discipline of anthropology was using a technique that was called semiotics. And the idea was that you would look for significant differences in the population you were studying, and you would see the clothing as mapping on to those significant differences the sort of blue for boys, pink for girls kind of idea, or uniforms, the informal, um, or things suitable for youth as opposed to the elderly, or whatever. Um, the idea was that the, the, the clothing was used to signify, it, um, and it signified salient differences that we were trying to study. Um, and you get that, obviously, with the likes of Baudrillard, with an anthropology, people like Marshall Salins, um, undertaking those initial studies, and it became kind of standard for the way you undertook certain kinds of material culture studies in those days. Um, now, once upon a time, the blue jeans in the streets that we worked in, if you listen to people's oral history, did signify. There was a time when they were American. There was a time when they were um, before the hoodies, you know, the, there were police working on the street, and we used to ask them, you know, 
Um, they remember a time when they would look for people wearing Jesus, sort of vaguely, slightly transgressive, as it were. There was a time. That time is not today. Um, if you look at the genes today, they, any social parameter you care to think about, it just doesn't work. Age, um, we're finding not just toddlers, we've got wretched babies in denim diapers, um, or certainly baby grows. Um, other end of age, people who aren't even brought up wearing blue jeans, don't kind of form that period. 70s, 80s, today, very comfortable wearing blue jeans. There is no age which isn't a blue jeans age. Um, gender. Um, actually, um, there are countries you can go to where the predominant female genes are very sexy and close-fitting, etc. But apart from late teenagers, or when you're going to a party or whatever, most of the genes we're looking at are pretty, not baggy, but, not, but fairly nondescript in themselves. And they're, not, they're clearly not signifying um, sexuality per se, or particularly uh, gender. Um, class, would you really know going behind somebody whether they're the maid or the mistress? And if it was expensive with Swarovski um, crystals, would that be the maid or would it be the mistress? Um, It's very hard to actually, unless you're absolutely the connoisseur of these things, it is very hard to actually read the stuff. And the point is, of course, any generalisation about something like blue jeans is utterly wrong. Right? This is what half the world is wearing every day. And even in London, which is the only place I'm really talking about at the moment, it's huge. Of course, there are designer jeans. There are expensive jeans. There are uh, fashion jeans. There are skinny jeans, etc. And uh, uh, quite a few of the people that we, w- we worked with had bought a pair of such jeans. But what we were interested in is what did they intend to wear on a day-to-day basis? And you find, except for marked occasions like the party, etc., it's the nondescript ones they're wearing. And the really amazing thing is that when you try to ask about brands, people just didn't know. They couldn't, you know, they've had a vague idea of shop brands, Primark, Asda, whatever. But this was, often they, we have to look and see, where the hell did I get these? Um, What they're looking for is simply something that they feel fits, works for them. Um, Wherever down the high street they actually get it. Um, Men, if anything, even uh, more so. Um, Levi-Strauss is, again, about the only brand that seems to impinge upon consciousness very much. Um, So the point is that semiotics is no longer working. The genes don't stand for anything. And what we did was we developed the term post-semiotic. Now, actually, technically, you can't have post-semiotic because it would even signify that it isn't anything. But we weren't being technical. We figured, you know what we mean when we say post-semiotic in this case, right? Um, And the genes, and and the the, the sort of, in a sense, the demonstration of that goes back to what I was saying about the people, that they go with anything. And the reason they go with anything is because they are nothing. They have achieved a neutrality that allows people to understand them in that way. Okay. Why does that matter to anybody, unless you're interested particularly in clothing, fashion, or whatever? Um, is this a contribution to social science? Well, I think development of post-semiotics is quite an interesting term in itself. But I think it matters in other ways as well. Um, one of the things we found in these streets was there are a relatively high proportion of migrants, particularly migrants from South Asia, although no particular area of South Asia. It's all over the place, from Sri Lanka to Bangladesh or whatever. Um, 
And as we inquired further, we started to think about the relationship, particularly between that segment of the population and the wearing of blue jeans. And we started to realise that actually this was relatively significant for them. Why? Because there is, of course, a politics of migration. It doesn't seem any sign of it going away anytime soon. Um, multiculturalism, identity politics, you name it. But what we found in the main, generalisation, is that most of the people we're talking to, there were times and places where they would want this to matter, maybe going to a wedding, etc. But a lot of the time, they didn't particularly want to be fussed about issues of identity. You don't want to have to choose, oh, am I associated with the place I came from, or am I now associated with Britain, or whatever. And if that is your stance, then blue jeans are actually pretty useful. Because blue jeans do not come from Britain, and they don't come from anywhere else. They have no specific association. It gets you beyond that particular dichotomy. Blue jeans means you can relax out of identity. And a lot of the time, that's exactly what people wanted to do. So what we were starting to realise is that there is a neglected topic in the social sciences. I mean, from time to time, people have worked in it. But anyway, the topic really is the topic of ordinariness. Because we're starting to realise that there is actually a reason why what people are trying to strive for here is to be ordinary. And that for some people in particular, um, being ordinary um, has actually considerable significance. And it relates to wider issues, not just, you can think of, you know, there's migration, you could equally think of issues to do with equality, with all sorts of areas of interest in social science, and actually the term ordinary becomes quite an important term, but on the whole, I would say, um, a rather um, neglected term. Um, but for people, it was, the point about ordinary, and it goes with the point of comfort, is the sense that you kind of can get back into something which is a form, if you like, of relaxation. I'm just going to give you one example. I remember we were very excited when we met um, somebody called Odette, um, because Odette came from Sierra Leone, and Actually, she came from the bit of Sierra Leone where they're still growing um, indigo. And there's very few places in the world where people still grow plant indigo and use it for dyeing. So we thought that was kind of cool. Um, um, but then she started to tell us you know, her story, uh, her, her regional relationship to indigo dyeing. Then um, the jeans she used to get from uh, catalogue shopping, I think it was Littlewood's catalogues, going out to West Africa, um, getting the jeans from there, then coming over to the UK... Um, but first being interested in brands and labels and then increasingly getting into the good old English grunge and not being so interested in brands and labels and the rest of it. Um, and he, the jeans she has a real attachment for are the ones she's worn for 10 years that have become soft and intimate and personal. More than just physically comfortable, they genuinely contribute to her ability to feel relaxed. But one also senses they're part of the way she feels comfortable in the wider social sense as just another person living in a certain North London area. She retains her marked cultural identity for those occasions which she feels is appropriate, such as a family wedding. Her husband's a staunch Jehovah's Witness, and she does not wear jeans for church. But in her everyday life, she's content to have lost any particular regional affiliation or identity, to be mother and wife, but also have her own career, and above all, her own personality. In most respects, she regards herself as having achieved a state of the merely ordinary, though she does not much reflect on the struggle to achieve this state. Incidentally, with the Jehovah's Witness... Um, 
Of course, the one thing that remains if it's post-semiotic is that if you want to show that you are marked, like to have a wedding, then one of the ways of doing it is to say that's not an appropriate place to wear blue jeans. Similarly, if you're often in businesses where you're serving the public to show extra respect, you're not supposed to be wearing blue jeans. So it still has that kind of dichotomy um, left. Um, now, I've tried to give examples of where um, the study of blue jeans can be extracted then from the context of, say, business and economics and show how it can contribute to a whole series of debates in social science. I also suggested um, that you can take this all the way up to issues to do with philosophy. And I want to give a brief example of how I think that works. Um, For anthropologists, I would argue, there is one particular issue in philosophy that is probably more important than any other. And it's kind of the backbone, in a sense, to what the discipline is and what it presumes when it does its studies. And that is the concept of normativity. Now, the concept of normativity um, means simply that any action in a social field are likely to be judged. Right, wrong, appropriate, inappropriate, proper, or transgressive. And such judgments imply norms into which people are socialised. Now, it's not that, like, normativity... Um, was invented at some point. You can't have religion, law, or for that matter, kinship, without normativity. It's presupposed in pretty much everything we do. And then you can think about the way normativity relates to different approaches in social science, so practice theory, or to a- any other area that you're interested in. Um, you know, as, but as Gillett said, at one level, what do we mean by culture, not consensus? And even if you don't like culture concepts, the group that you are working with, it might be, I don't know, ex-hippie, anti-state, radical collective, but it's still got the normativity around anti-state collectives. Um, you don't get away, in the sense, from normativity. Now, this is a concept that's certainly been subject to philosophical discussion, and particularly in the philosophy of social sciences. Um, people like Stephen Rouse, and jo- uh, uh, Stephen Turner, Joseph Rouse, etc., have been debating um, the meaning and the implications of issues such as normativity. Don't have time to go into their arguments. Um, the, the origins, I suppose, of the academic thinking about um, normativity in philosophy um, would presumably come from the work of Kant um, and issues about, um, about morality and reason and duty and so forth. But you could equally say it's there in Hegel, I would think, and pretty much any other Enlightenment tradition. And if you were to sort of summarise, in my case usually vulgarise, um, those traditions then I think it's fair to say that what Enlightenment philosophy was trying to argue was that um, we should be moving towards a state in which moral decision-making, which normativity, increasingly becomes something that arises out of um, consciousness, knowledge, intentionality, etc., rather than merely being customary. Um, that, in a sense, is one of the, the, the issues around the Enlightenment and philosophy, really, um, thereafter. So one of the things that is, I think, interesting about blue jeans is what does it say about all these presumptions around the nature of normativity? Because normativity implies at least some pressure, as it were, some adjudication as to what you should or should not be doing. Um, but it's hard to see that in blue jeans. I mean, it's hard to see, um, you know, I'm trying to imagine a, a father talking to his son and saying, you know, my son, one day when you grow up, I want you to be merely ordinary, or a mother to her daughter, 
one day when you grow up, I hope you will aspire to wear blue jeans. It hasn't kind of got that ring to it, right? Actually, what's interesting about it is that I think it does do stuff out in the world um, that pertains to these ideas that I've talked about related to migration, equality, etc. But it doesn't seem to do so in the spirit of that particular philosophical trajectory. And therefore, I think it's got an interesting place in questioning certain presumptions that we tend to make. Not every philosopher. Um, there's like Elizabeth Anscombe's work on intentionality that might be different, etc. But in general terms, I think it has a point. So I would argue that if we can take this area of consumption, in this particular case exemplified by the uh, topic of blue jeans, and extract it from where it had been, it can contribute right away across the board to issues in social science and indeed even issues in philosophy. Um, the thing I've kind of neglected thereby um, is the economics. All I've done is push that out of the equation. But in the book, Consumption and Its Consequences, what I'm trying to do is use that book partly to, as it were, liberate the study of consumption and show why it is important for these different reasons, but also, as I go back to the consequences, instead of, seeing it as instead of seeing political economy as cause, see what implications does this have for rethinking what we mean by areas like political economy, um, and the last chapter particularly about climate change. Now, I'm not going to have time to go into this in any detail, it's kind of in the book. Um, one of the things I argue is against a whole lot of other models of how political science operates, because I prefer to see it often as... Um, um, economy, sorry, as rather fortuitous juxtaposition, um, often of quite kind of contradictory and arbitrary forces, rather than kind of the, the logic that you get in sort of textbooks, or indeed the logic you get in the critiques. Um, in the sense they mirror each other in their arguments um, about there being a kind of logic. Well, I just see um, things whirling about and clashing in all sorts of interesting ways. But I'm going to just give one example because it's like the one that fits this lecture because it's kind of the revenge of clothing um, upon economics. Um, and that is that actually I haven't, in my discussion of blue jeans, um, talked very much, obviously, about fashion. Right? In fact, I deliberately excluded it um, for the reasons I gave earlier. But I think the study of fashion is important. Um, and I think the study of things that are, you know, the clothing, it's the clothing that's seen as superficial and capricious and fashionable, etc. I don't think the clothing is, but I really do think the economy is. And I think that actually you can do very serious studies of what goes on in the economy um, through precisely those devices that were developed for the study of clothing. So, for example, one that I've been involved in for quite a long time was an interest in a particular phenomena that was called shareholder value. And if you looked at shareholder value, which is a hugely powerful influence in the modern economy, you could see the way it developed in the first place, the, the way it tried to brush uh, aside all traditional economic criteria like sort of simple profitability, etc., as the proper thing that all firms and markets should aspire to. And you could see that actually who the fashion gurus are in this world. The fashion gurus are companies like McKinsey, um, Accenture, the management consultants. I think the real impact of these firms today, what makes them very powerful, is they spread fashion. They spread the idea, you know, at a certain date, if you're not doing shareholder value, you're dead in the market. 
Um, this is the place to be right now. And you see that through the ethnographies. When the anthropologists come into economic institutions, like Karen Ho's study of investment banks, etc., you can see the hold that these ideas like shareholder value have. Um, and I don't think it's the only case. I mean, uh, Paul Krugman was talking recently about the austerity ideas from which we are suffering at the present time in the UK. And again, very much pitching this around the notions of fashions that develop and come and then fall in relation to the economics. So I do think there are things that can be said um, going, in a sense, in the opposite direction. Um, and there are other, as I said, there are other examples of it. And even if we go all the way to um, other consequences of consumption, like climate change. Because I think there's, a, there's an interesting relationship between um, blue jeans, actually, and climate change. In, again, though, it's fortuitous. If you read um, the sort of experts on clothing and sustainability, people like Kate Fletcher, you find that the key, actually, in terms of the detrimental effect that clothing has, um, vis the possibilities of, of, of uh, global warming... It's less actually in the manufacture, it's more in the amount of washing that goes on and detergents, etc., that are applied to the clothes um, post, as it were, purchase. And it just so happens, of course, um, that precisely because denim jeans are the things that we actually have longest, replace less often, actually, at least in my case, wash less often, um, they, in a sense, become, there's almost this kind of possibility, I think, that one could actually, instead of having this as an irrelevant consequence, I have this fantasy that maybe actually we could highlight that aspect of, of G. So, you know, could, as it were, blue be the new green, or green be the new blue, whichever way it goes, um, and actually see how certain kinds of clothing um, could operate in relation to um, sustainability in clothing. Because I and a lot of people hope that um, after the interest of food in terms of organics and sustainability, that this will move into the clothing sector more generally. Um, but then I think there is a bigger point here, and it's the point that really is the conclusion um, for the lecture. Because in reading all this work about climate change, we read a good deal about consumption. Um, people are, are writing um, screeds about issues around consumption. And the problem in most of that writing is that you find it is a full of conflation between the specific issues that pertain to climate change and the whole burden of a kind of moral history um, that denigrates consumption in and of itself, the problem of consumption. It's almost like climate change has a, a silver lining in the clouds that at least we will consume less. Um, and that morally is kind of good for us. And it is one example of the fact that when you work on consumption, you find that almost wherever you go, whether it is from economics, the discipline, or the critique of economics, the politics, or the issue, as in climate change, you get the, the projection down upon consumption of what people need it to be in terms of the arguments that they particularly want to make, um, whether it is in politics or economics or whatever else. It's constantly being projected down. Um, and consumption has continuously been this kind of football of, of ideological debate. And I believe that within that, we need to preserve a certain kernel of what I would call academic integrity, 
that I hope certainly anthropologists will preserve, um, and sociologists and all other social scientists, um, in which we actually recognise that if we're really going to address these things properly, we need to take them in the terms that we find them. We need to study the world, not project onto it what it would like to be. So then in climate change debate, we can separate out what the science tells us and what the science tells us we need to do away from some kind of wider moral confusion, which is one of the reasons I think a lot of these policy suggestions simply don't fly. Um, We need to separate those things out. And we do it by being prepared to accept the study of these things just because they're blindingly obvious. They're out in the world, and we need to understand them in their own terms. In other words, what I'm saying is that instead of all this top-down projection, we also need to preserve that traditional academic virtue of what you might call a bottom-up perspective coming from what people are actually doing. And if, in the end of the day, you want to have a bottom-up perspective, I would suggest that blue jeans are not a bad place to look. Thank you. Thanks very much. We've got a good 45 minutes or so for questions, so over to you guys. Thanks very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, The one thing that was um, really, really in my mind listening to you talk about um, blue jeans was the diffusion of other types of cultural innovations, like, for example, the diamond as an engagement ring or breakfast cereal, which are all um, new cultures of consumption that we didn't have uh, 100 or 150 years ago, um, which have now become um, past epidemic proportions to become norms, um, whether by default or design. Um, And I was wondering um, what we can learn from sort of deconstructing these norms um, if we're trying to engineer behaviours that are outside of the consumption realm. You mentioned um, sustainability. So we've got got people acting in certain ways now um, because of new social norms. So what can we learn from these consumption-related norms to create maybe uh, norms around pro-sociality or sustainability or financial prudence? Yes, I mean, absolutely right. that um, Consumption... um, Although... You're absolutely right that consumption is constantly changing. Um, new norms arise, new globalising norms arise. Um, the only thing I would say is that goes back a lot further than most people think. You, know, you could probably look at the Roman Empire and find similar kinds of um, trends and counter-trends going on. And um, we also have to be careful because in other work that I have done, I mean, I've often argued that things that look like they are global norms actually, when you look in more detail through the ethnography, you find all sorts of rather specific ways in which those are being used, the meaning they have in particular areas. But nevertheless, um, we live in a world in which some things seem to expand into um, wider forms of, of, uh, of norm and other people's other things that were there kind of sink. I think that the, the argument I would make is that, um, tr- that trying to use these issues around the way people um, regard consumption as part and parcel of their daily lives, their norms, their routines, their everyday practices, um, is actually not 
the best route, to be honest, um, into looking at possibilities of sustainability unless you can leverage some particular aspect. And actually, in fact, I gave an example because I, I said that um, the possibility of blue jeans having fortuitously these characteristics that made them more sustainable than other clothing might be precisely an example of that leveraging a characteristic and trying to make it into something that we actually push that we actually um, pronounce as a good thing about um, these trousers, so that if you want to also see sustainability as part of your shopping package, as it were, um, you might be actually encouraged to take on that particular norm as opposed to something that is more kind of detrimental. But on the whole, I, I, I don't think that these issues of sustainability and climate change are best tackled through, in a sense, um, pushing people into particular kinds of consumer practice. I, I think one of the problems is that um, in the study of climate change, we seem to have got to the place where the two things that we're trying to sort of do about climate change, on the one hand, is create markets like carbon markets, and on the other hand, um, influence consumer choice. Um, which is a bit bizarre, because actually the two things that are usually seen as responsible um, for the issues that we're trying to do something about are actually markets and, as it were, unfettered um, consumer choice. So in the book, I um, argue that despite the fact that it is a book about consumption, if, to really tackle issues of climate change, you're going to get a lot more done if you look at issues of production, if you look at issues of things like chemicals and other things that are actually used, if you, if you, if you put regulatory limits on what can be made in the first place and actually concentrate on that which um, is demonstrably detrimental um, to the climate. I think trying to do it through actually, I mean, what I suspect most green consumption does is become what I think has been called greenwashing, which effectively people feel good if they are um, not taking a plastic bag from the supermarket. Um, but I can't remember the statistic of how many hundreds of thousands of plastic bags you would not have to take to equal kind of one flight, etc. Um, it's, it's important. It, 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 the problem is that it's mainly about making people feel good. And I think climate change is just too serious a dilemma right now. It's not about making people feel good. It's actually about tackling climate change. And I sense to go from the science rather, in a sense, than from the consumption. Hi. Um, when I first read the description of this talk and the, the statistic about or this sort of rough statistic of half the population of any, anywhere wearing blue jeans at any one time, my first thought was, why aren't they at work? But what, why? why aren't they at work? For the majority of people, wearing blue jeans at work is not an option. Yes, if you work in a, a certain maybe sort of slightly trendier ends of the service sector or in a, a company that dress, does dress down or on a building side. But... Um, Jeans, the point I'm making is that jeans still do have one very strong cultural association, which is with uh, informality, casualness. You wear them at the weekend, um, you are unlikely to wear them to a job interview at Goldman Sachs, although the CEO of Goldman Sachs may wear them sometimes if he wants to project a certain informality. So I, if, there's one, if there's one aspect of the sort of the post-semiotic argument you're making that 
I was a little surprised by it. It's, it's that you don't see them having this association with, with casualness. And I think one of the reasons for that is because you st- one starts off with the same premise, that actually um, uh, they're not worn much at work, and then you start to realise that actually, to some degree, we've got this wrong. And the reason we've got it wrong came very clear from our interviews, because what people said again and again is that in their place of work, um, if they are at the front end where you see them, i.e. serving the public then, at least in certain occupations, it is seen as not suitable to wear jeans. But for everybody else who's actually working behind, which are often many more workers in various sectors, um, blue jeans are not a problem at all. So actually, um, the numbers of people in work who do wear blue jeans is much higher than we think because we are, um, we are misled by what we see as opposed to what we don't see. So al- although I, I mean the, the one... Ig- counter-example that I did give, in fact, in the paper, um, was actually about work where you're trying to show respect to the public. It really followed from my evidence that you're absolutely right. In those circumstances, it's a special form of marked situation. And you're also absolutely right that for people who have to wear other clothes at work, um, it is very common in the case that when they come home, they go back into jeans precisely um, as even more accentuated the fact that these are informal and relaxed, as opposed to the formality um, and, uh, of the work situation. But it, it, it's just what we found in our work. It was actually a lot less true than we thought. I guess I could have just sort of said it right here. But um, I, I was just really curious. All, so all the examples are about people who have had their genes for years. And in a global context, it's always about this idea of when they are personalized and when they are comfortable. But what about, like, what happens when you first buy those genes? And was there a difference in countries where they are putting babies in genes versus when you're an adult and you're buying your first pair of genes? Yeah, I mean... Um Two things. Firstly, I should have been clear in the talk. Um, a lot of the latter part of the generalizations was specific to London. Um, actually, for example, the things I was saying about brands would absolutely not be true if you were looking at genes in, I know, Qatar or, or um, Iwatux or somewhere else. At least I don't know about Iwatux. Um, there are plenty of other places where brands are much more, remain much more important. Um, this particularly kind of emphasis on the nondescript, um, I think, is, is uh, well, I think English, but I think especially London. Um, And the Global Denim book um, gives different micro-stories of the signification of genes. So the really post-semiotic seems to be um, here. Whether that's spreading to other places, um, and the degree it's spreading to other places, um, I'm not sure. I think it may be, but kind of slowly. Um, A good deal of the book, though, is about shopping. And uh, the shopping is both about... um, And we always ask people about their first pair of genes. Um, first pairs of jeans, I think, though, are, are uh, in a sense, peculiar because often it's, it's the young, the, the people who are first getting into that. Well, firstly, these days it's usually your parents actually buying your first pairs of jeans. Um, but we did have pay people where, you know, their first kind of, the, the first money they earned was to buy jeans if their parents didn't let them wear jeans. Um, and it, it's a significant, it can be a significant moment. Thereafter... Um, there is, well, there's a lot in the book about how people follow through to subsequent pairs of jeans that they buy. And one of the things that you find is that people um, often have very strong attachments to the jeans that they have been wearing and are really frustrated because they find, you know, they've been searching and searching, and it, it can be quite hard to get the jeans, right? 
But when you've got the genes, um, you really want to hang on to them, and they do fit good, and you like them, and you feel good when you go out. And three years later, what you want to do is go back and buy exactly the same pair of jeans. And you go into the shops, and the stupid company doesn't make them anymore. And the grief um, that you hear in people's voices, that, you know, then they've got to start the whole process again of finding the right pair of, of, of jeans for them. And that was the point we were making, that what we found is people weren't concerned so much about brands and those kind of issues, but they did have a strong idea that somewhere there were the genes that were their genes. Um, and that goes back, I think, to these issues I was talking about, about personalization, etc., which I think is still there. Um, and that is what dominates a lot of our, of our shopping accounts. But there's a whole chapter precisely on the shopping aspects. Of the, and, and also, as I said, these stories about your first genes. Hi. Um, I was wondering, basically, like, within the, the framework um, of post-semiotics, um, how do you interpret the, the increasing like polarization, <laughs> so the, the, the polarization between uh, between uh, raw denim and distressed denim? Um, okay, I think that um, the, the the point about I guess the the um, the idea of the post-semiotic is that it's what it's not signifying is differences in people. Right? Um, that's what we're getting beyond, the gender and the class and, and the rest of it. Um, it doesn't mean you don't get differences in genes, because you do. You get all sorts of genes categories going out there. Um, and um, obviously one of those that's very important is the distressed. But the distressed, I think, if, if our analysis is right, the distressed is not about creating a semiotic category of genes that can be differentiated from other genes. It's an attempt by commerce, by the market, to emulate a process by which genes become um, emblematic of you. It, it was following you know, my days, the hippie days, um, when I wore the genes to death. And therefore, it's, I mean, it's a, but distressing is bizarre, right? I mean, you sit there and you think some poor worker in Mexico is having their life shortened by using wretched chemicals on jeans so that you can buy things that look like they've already been worn for several years. Um, it's, a very, it, it's a kind of weird phenomenon. But I think that it pertains to these issues. You can see the history of it. It still, I think, pertains to these issues that I have this very um, particular... And if you look at some companies... Um, some companies will actually sell jeans, like they're, they're, I can't remember the name of the Swedish company. And if you look at their website, it's like, oh, what you do is you buy your jeans and then you don't wash them for like six months. Um, because then when you finally do wash them, the wash will wear into the creases that are your particular way of walking, you know, and your particular way of working. And all of these things, I think, are, are kind of um, either sort of fictive ways of encapsulating that idea of the, the particular person's relationship to the particular genes. Um, so I think it is actually compatible um, with the wider idea of um, the extent to which genes used to signify social differentiation and don't so much today. Um, and people, um, I mean, it, I don't want to exaggerate. I mean, there's clearly a youth tendency around distressing, but, but not entirely. My, my question actually relates to the previous question. Uh, what about uh, the sustainability part of 
blue jeans. Uh, if you compare stuff you buy from Primark, which probably been, it, there's nothing sustainable about it, compared to jeans that's been, that were made 20, 30 years ago, that's a completely different thing, because the ones that were made age 30 years ago will last, but the ones you buy from Primark will probably last you six months till the first wash. Um, yeah, I think the point I was making was that, I mean, clearly there are sustainability issues around production. And actually, if you go into it, I mean, there were very serious issues about cotton production. Um, cotton production in terms of uh, water usage and, and various other factors is a highly problematic area. And, that, and obviously, um, one would like to foster in the future um, genes that were organic and genes, indeed, that were fair trade and genes that were ethical in a number of other um, different ways. But the point I was making was that, although that is the case... Um, according to the people who work on sustainability, and I think Kate Fletcher is probably the, as good as there is, um, she argues that the, the, the major effect that the clothing has is not actually in the production process, it's post-production. It's, post it's in the washing and etc., etc. And in as much as that is the case, um, you had this kind of almost accidental um, issue where blue jeans have a propensity, as it were, um, to be um, in, only in that area, not, not in terms of what you just asked, but um, sustainable. Now, what one would like to argue is that if maybe you could actually start focusing on that aspect of blue jeans um, and taking it as um, an issue of the post-production, you could start to get people interested in the bigger issues or the other issues of sustainability and feed this back to... Um, concerns about production, as you get in food, where food, um, obviously um, ethical food is trying to, to, to track back to at least us understanding and knowing more about the consequences of the specific consumption we do. So in that case, people would start to want to know what is the labour that went into this, how long would this last, what kind of chemicals were used in the process, and actually find out that, because one thing you're absolutely right about is that actually people these days put chemicals into genes in order, not, in order for them not to last as long as they used to, which is something rather problematic if you're interested in sustainability. Um, but I, whether you can actually use blue genes as a kind of icon, I mean, there are already things done in this direction. So, for example, somebody was working in, there's a paper in the, in the um, Global Denim Project by somebody called Bodo Olson, who looks at um, jeans days in the US, where um, the, because it's an iconic form, particularly the US, um, a lot of the focus on recycling um, actually focuses upon jeans. So it's jeans recycling day. So you're leveraging the iconic nature of the jeans to do that. Um, but clearly, it hasn't got yet... Um, to anything like issues about, you know, how to Primark actually source and, and produce their genes. Okay. Apart from sourcing, if the fabric is poor quality, then it won't last, it won't behave I, the same I'd way. I'd be a little careful of that. I mean, I, um, I'm not an expert on production. It's not really what I study. But actually, um, I've worked with people who are in the trade, and they wouldn't necessarily... I mean, the, the people who are actually the buyers. Um, most of these genes are made in China, 
And mostly, um, the genes that you're buying, even quite expensive ranges, are exactly the same genes as Primark and all these other companies are making. Um, these differences are created at the level of retail. Um, the idea that ones, I mean, they're coming from the same factories, they're basically the same cloth. This is what the buyers tell me. I haven't been to the factories, I haven't tried looking at the sourcing, but the buyers who work on denim tell me that actually it's the same stuff. Shall I do um, um, Yes, my question was about the philosophy part, again, in, re in relation to the anti-semiotics that you're trying to articulate. So, and you said specifically in London, the anti-semiotics. So what is the philosophy of denim in London? Is it some kind of um, cosmopolitanism? attached to, because you were mentioning that people wear jeans to feel uh, like a citizen of the world. Is it some form of cosmopolitanism attached to this empty signifier, this empty universal signifier? How would you call the philosophy yeah. of the enemy? What I was arguing was, um, I didn't use the word cosmopolitanism. I think cosmopolitanism has all sorts of connotations that I was not trying to visit, well, signify. Um, the word that I used and I think would stick with is this word ordinary. Um, I think that, um, the, and that is, if you like, the core of that uh, aspect of the philosophy of denim in London, um, that ordinariness, um, it, I, th I think the reason it's preferable to cosmopolitanism is cosmopolitanism is as though you are trying to be something or do something um, in relation, as it were, to the world consciously, in a way. I'm, I want to be a cosmopolitan, whereas I don't want to be an ordinary, right? And there's a, the, the difference is important. Um, because my argument is that what genes pertain to is the ability to people to relax. And, and the word, that's why this word relax is important. It's not just that when you come back from the office where you couldn't wear blue jeans and you come back and you relax. But as in that word comfort, these words actually create a, con a linkage between this almost kind of physical sense of comfort and relax, and this much wider social arena. So to relax from identity is to be ordinary, right? To relax from signification is to be ordinary. To relax from standing out is to be ordinary. And that is why I think, actually, that ordinary is far more important than we have usually given it credit for. Um, and why I would much prefer to use that term than things like um, so even though you are part of the world it's part of, you know, it's, it's as an ordinary, you're not, you're, it's not um, a pretension to something it's relaxing from those pretensions and that's certainly the way it comes over I think when we're doing our ethnography that it's like, just don't want to be bothered with all that um, and that's what, what makes ordinary um, relaxing on from the um, ordinariness that people are using in their in the whole area of dressing mm. uh, and put against that your um, observation that people still want to have an attachment to particularity and that nobody's parents are exhorting them to be ordinary have your observations identified any alternative respects that are coming to the fore that people are using as signifiers of distinction yeah. okay most of us don't go out in the street just wearing blue jeans, at least most of the time. Um, and actually, um, 
ordinariness is not, as it were, fully constitutive. Exactly is what you're saying. It's got to be seen in a, in a wider context. And you can see this both in terms of the dress and then you can see it in terms of a kind of wider politics. Now, to the dress alone, um, when people wear jeans, one of the things they say about it a lot is that the nice thing about jeans is you can dress it up, you can dress it down, you can do all sorts of things, okay? I mean, jeans can be with a smart, a formal, um, a glamorous. And what you've then done is you've taken something which in itself as a kind of foundation of ordinariness, but you've added to it um, something that actually can be extremely signifying um, and demonstrating all sorts of things that you want to demonstrate. And the play between these two things is often very important to people in the act of dressing. Or you can just have it with a T-shirt and a pair of trainers, in which case you're pretty ordinary, right? as it were, consistent. Now, if you then turn to the other areas in which we're looking at people wearing this stuff, say one of the South Asian migrants I might have been working with, um, they would also say, you know, I could wear um, uh, a, ka- uh, Indian, a kameez, uh, um, an Indian top garment and jeans. And in a way, and I could wear that to, um, to a temple. And it's again, they don't really want to be fully kind of ethnicized, um, but they also are prepared to compromise between those kind of two positions. So there are circumstances where they want to be completely out of that, um, where nothing that has those connotations. There are times when they are, as it were, dressing up the genes by virtue of um, the juxtaposition between the genes and some other garment that does have signification, and there are times when they're not wearing jeans, but they're wearing something which is fully, as it were, um, of that other. So um, these are you know, complex, as it were, um, negotiations and assemblages of things. And, and I think the, the reasons why I wanted to concentrate on the genes themselves is because I think they brought out what I found were interesting issues around things like ordinaries, etc. But these did not exist in the world. In the same way, you know, I don't want to stand there and say, you know, the things I was saying about migration. It's not, genes do not solve all the political issues of migration, right? Um, they're not going to end racism right here because people are wearing genes. There are all sorts of other things going on that people either don't change or indeed, like skin colour, can't change. Um, but that doesn't take from what people are trying to do with the genes, which is what I was trying to, in a sense, extract from that and understand in its own right. But genes are never outside of context. And that context will bring in all the things that you're talking about and takes us to um, the wider ethnography and, and wider social sciences, inevitably. Um. I wanted to, so you're talking about this as a kind of logic of ordinariness in terms of London specifically. So in your experience of other places, um, kind of I think you mentioned India, um, uh, South India, um, whether genes have a more kind of significant, a greater significance in terms of signifying potentially a cosmopolitan culture or kind of being a kind of global citizen or whether it's kind of a similar... Yeah, I think that... Um, the, the spirit of anthropology is in e- each place deserves its own ethnography. And the, the gene story comes, emerges from 
the specifics of that particular ethnography. But let me give you that particular one, okay? So I was working in um, this area called Kanur in South India, um, and there there are very, very clear limits about who wears jeans and what jeans means. So, for example, um, married women do not wear jeans, like never, right? It's just not on. Um, and also, you can see, actually, the classic semiotic traditions going on in terms of the using of differences in the clothing to signify a difference in the population. So, for example, if you look at jeans and canoe, the, the little kids, the six-year-olds, are wearing incredibly bright you know, pink things with patches and jewels and crystals and all the rest of it. And then as you get a little bit older into the teenage, um, they're wearing um, jeans with fancy belts, a bit of the kind of embroidery stuff you get here, and, you know, uh, um, and uh, sort of adolescent style. Then when you get older, you look at, say, the, the university, the uh, college, um, they're wearing fairly plain jeans. And then um, when you quite often go to, to work, that would be a case where jeans are often, they have what's called executive wear which is definitely not jeans. And you can actually work through the precise way in which the genes transform through age and therefore signify life stages. So you can look at gender and you can look at age and you can look at all sorts of things. To put the whole package together and relate to this issue of cosmopolitanism, um, what was interesting was the, the, the different ways in which um, genes were not allowed. Kanur is a fairly conservative area. Um, it used to be... It's a, Muslim principality, and there are various issues around it, in which you can see that people there feel threatened by external pressures, including pressures they, that signify modernity of one kind or another, that seem uh, problematic for the values that people have in the town. And to summarise the whole story, what I argued in that paper was that um, genes are actually associated with that outside world. So quite often, it's okay to wear genes when you're taking a train to Bangalore, right? But you kind of even but you wouldn't necessarily wear them when you come back. So genes are then being used as, almost as a kind of barrier between the conservatism of the town, expressed through a number of different social parameters and that outside world and the influences of that outside world. Now that is, again is a very specific story. It's a story about semiotics. Um, it's what genes are doing in that place. Um, I could give you other stories about Brazil, and each one would have its own, um, uh, it, it, its own analysis and its own implications, which is why I said, again, the thing I was concentrating on was London, not genes as a whole. Having said that, of course, some of the things I was saying were related to much wider issues, such as you know, the ubiquity as opposed to the personalisation. So it depends on which bit of the analysis we're talking about. But the, the book Global Denim, in fact there's a website called the Global Denim Project, which we set up as part of this, you will find um, uh, examples of these very specific uh, ethnographic analyses of genes in, in basically all around the world. Um, hello. Um, I was just curious why you've written out gender to the extent that you have, and if I could just return to North London for a moment. I mean, you seem to have kind of shifted a bit between some of the time talking about denim in terms of relaxation and weekends, mm -hmm. and then in response to a chap um, earlier, talked about backroom work and, and frontroom work. I mm -hmm. mean, it, and I was kind of surprised that 
you know, you don't at all refer to all of the sociology of the body and gender differences actually in embodiment and how significant fashion and clothes still are. And, for example, I would never dream of wearing blue jeans into the LSE in a million years. You know, I mean, I think in terms of professional and managerial work and all sorts of work, you know, we've got still a very sex-segregated labour market. I'm a production person, not a consumption person. And... Um, I just don't see at all um, sort of the, the kind of drift of your argument, which is somehow if one parallels it with the sort of migration issue, that somehow the genes will allow women to be ordinary because one thing that women can't be in a sex-segregated labour market is kind of invisible and ordinary. So I just wondered okay. if you'd engage with that. Sure. And a kind of related issue really is kind of the old one about domestic labour. I mean, one of the things about genes is that they wash and don't need ironing, and it seems to me that the domestic labour issue is kind of quite significant in terms of the kind of denim as well. And just thirdly, just, you know, give you a few yeah. things to respond to, I also wondered about the difference... I mean, I love the, um, the Zimmel stuff and, and the business about standardisation versus kind of individualisation, and I kind of think that's very nice. But I just wondered about kind of uniforms in terms of that. I don't know what writing there is about uniforms and how people individualise uniforms and whether there was anything to kind of draw from that literature. So just a few okay. things to comment on. I mean, I think the point is you are clearly working in areas to do with labour um, where issues of segregation, gender differences are presumably everything that you find uh, in your work. Um, the question really is whether I should be, um, whether I should argue whether the, the same kinds of genderized issues pertain to the material that I'm studying, and I'm standing here quite clearly. And Sophie Woodward, who I worked with would, and who works writes books of feminism, would say even more clearly that they don't. That is to say that the really uh, conspicuous thing about genes in the ethnography that we studied is the degree to which people do not seem to want to um, signify issues of gender with respect to the bulk of ordinary genes. Now, that is not true of certain groups and certain times and certain areas. I said all generalizations about something as big as this are wrong. So young women of a certain age uh, wear sexy genes. Um, and indeed, if you did the work somewhere else, we've got work in Milan, for example. The way women wear jeans in Milan is completely different. I mean, if you really want to see how ungendered London is, you need to go to Milan and see what women are doing with jeans there. It's a completely different story. But again and again, I'm not saying, you know, I've never suggested jeans resolve all problems of immigration, abolish gender differentiation, have any impact whatsoever on what's going on in the labor force and the areas that you're working in. I wouldn't dream of saying any of those things. What I am saying is that with respect to the material that we engage with in terms of what people are doing in their home and why they... Our question is, why are they wearing the blue jeans? What is going on? How can we explain that? Um, and gender might, might well have been a really important aspect of that explanation. But we're standing here and we're saying quite clearly, it is not except for certain particular cases, uh, certain ages, certain contexts, etc. It seems to us that people were wearing blue jeans for, amongst other things, trying to relax from issues of the sexualized body 
um, issues of gender. That they, there were certain areas just that people don't want to spend all their time being, as it were, tokenly ethnic. They don't necessarily want to be all their time being tokenly gender. And this is one of the areas they are actually using actively to try and separate themselves out from those pressures. And it may be precisely because they feel those pressures in the sector that you're working in that they are so keen to get away from them in the areas that I'm working in. Now, similarly, I wasn't talking, obviously, about issues of domestic labour in particular, um, but if one wanted to, then there would be a relevance of the way in which genes are treated and, uh, um, in terms of the cleaning, etc., and the fact that domestic labour is gendered. I think it would be a fairly obvious relationship of the kind that you discussed. Um, but I don't think it detracts from the points, the insights that we were trying to gather um, from the study of why people were wearing the things as opposed to the implications of the washing of the things. Actually, um, I, I mean, I'm going back to the previous question, um, I do remember um, that the situation in, in India um, where one of the things you realise is if you don't have a washing machine and you're actually um, reduced to washing clothes in the river, etc., wet blue jeans are back-breaking. Um, and I met many mothers who really, really wished their children were not wearing blue jeans because they were the worst things to try and wash. Um, and their um, clothes washing is totally gender-segregated. So there would be instances where this would be absolutely germane. Um, uh, but in our case, what was interesting is the degree to which... I mean, again, you know, if you look at, for example, the phenomenon of boyfriend jeans... Um, you can find an instance, they're called boyfriend genes, right? Clearly, they have issues about them that relate to the way um, men and women um, understand each other in terms of ordinary domestic violence. And so if you wrote an article precisely about boyfriend genes, um, looking at that particular kind of, of category. But she would say, if you take the, 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 the most part of our work, um, I think sometimes you have to stand up and say, no, you know, it doesn't seem to be what's going on. Thanks for your talk. Uh, what I'm going to ask follows on, in a way, from the last question. Over really quite a long period, I think, I can remember meeting women, talking to women, um, virtually all, I'm sure, university-educated, who have told me that they find wearing jeans uncomfortable. Um, what were they saying? Um... Again, the problem with jeans is if half the population are wearing it, um, millions of people in any given day, there is going to be a great diversity of people's relationship to those jeans. And it may be that in the particular context that you're talking about, it may be, for example, in a, a you're talking about a university environment. And I suspect that, um, and I'm just guessing because I wasn't studying young women in colleges, but let's guess, okay? let's speculate. It may well be that this is an area where people feel pressured, in some sense or other, to conform to a particular norm, as was discussed there, which is, if you look at actually what people in college wear, the proportion of blue jeans would probably be a good deal higher 
than in even the streets that I'm working in. And it may be that some of these people are feeling, in this case, that there is a normative pressure, which is not what we're finding in the streets. And if that was the case, then you could imagine that people may feel uncomfortable because instead of this being a relaxation from pressure, it is actually an expression of pressure itself. Um, all I can say is that in the study that we're doing, which probably it's, it's, it, um, the kind of um, echelon we're dealing with tended to be people who didn't go to college very much, um, or maybe secretarial college, etc. It's a fairly low-income area. Um, no. Um, uh, I mean, yes, we would find people who hate jeans, who never wear jeans, who find jeans uncomfortable. But in general, the vast majority of the people that we're talking about are the people I am generalizing about. That is to say, they specifically say again and again, the reason you wear jeans is they are the most comfortable thing you can wear. Um, and it is overwhelming preponderance of that response. You wear jeans because they're the most comfortable thing you can wear. You wear jeans because they go with everything. Um, there are exceptions. I don't, um, you know, and there may be particular circumstances in which would account for what you found, but it's not what we found. Hi, I have a really short question. <laughs> Just going back to one of your first statements, saying that genes allow us to feel as part of the world. Yeah. I'm wondering, how does that hold in southern, Kira like in southern India, where people believe maybe genes even came from India, if they weren't from Germany, right? Um, like, what is it that can still convey the sense of being part of the world, if I don't, like, like beyond knowledge, or beyond I, information? I, yeah. I think that... Um, the point I was making about actually the specific area of Kanur is that by and large they didn't want to feel uh, part of the world, that the world was a threat. Um, and as I said, they feel that there are, very, there are particular traditional values, and it's a fairly conservative place, um, which pertain to religion, pertain to history, pertain to all sorts of things that they want to protect. Um, they do think that genes signify something in that wider world. Um, they haven't got a particularly clear idea of where that world is or what it consists of. In fact, actually, the most important other world that these people um, relate to is the Gulf, because there are so many workers going at the moment from um, South India and working in the Gulf. Um, and that's really their sense of the, the cosmopolitanism that, that they identify um, tends to be um, the, the Gulf regions and because of the labor migration. Um, so they kind of have a sense of that, but no, in this case, um, it's a sense that they're actually quite wary of um, and ambivalent about. So actually, you'll find people... And ambivalence, I think, is, is really important in these kind of areas. It's not that you, know, you want to be global, you don't want to be global. Most people want to be both of those things at once. And indeed, the whole point of that argument about the personalization and the ubiquity is that actually what it implies is ambivalence. Um, you want both sides, right? And you want them somehow to resolve something you understand as contradictory. And that, I think, will be the case in Canor. They kind of do, and when they get on a train to Bangalore, they often will put on a pair of jeans. And they kind of don't when they're back in Canor. And that's because when they're back home, they are more identifying with that sense of conservative resistance. And when they're out there, they're more interested in looking like they're the kind of person who would be easy in Bangalore. Um, and that, I think, is not a very surprising kind of ambivalence.
So, you know, the, the answer, in a sense, as you would expect from an anthropologist, there's always a local version of that general claim. One more question. Um, maybe you can hear me now. Um, to what extent would you associate statement, an anti-materialist statement. Materialism always gets very bad press. Um, if I think back over the years, I've always associated in my mind wearing of jeans with some sort of anti-materialist view that you don't look rich if you're, if you're, wearing, if you're wearing jeans. Um, you're certainly right that in the history of jeans... Um, I think there has been times when genes are strongly connoted. Um, that kind of you know, hippie, beginning of the distressing and all the rest of it, I think was, amongst other things, um, anti-materialist. There's also, actually, the potential of genes, of course, to be simply anti-fashion. Um, you know, why the hell should these businesses tell me what I should wear this year? You know? I don't want to wear what the magazines, etc., are telling me is this year's uh, items of clothing. I'm going to wear blue jeans. And um, that is a possible reason, as it were, for wearing them. But I want to be careful, because um, plenty of people in our work say the reason they wear it is because it never goes out of fashion. Now, if you're saying you're wearing jeans because they never go out of fashion, don't think you're actually saying that you're wearing them to be anti-fashion. Um, you're wearing them, in a sense, um, in relation to wanting, again, back that sort of ambivalence, to be there and not there. And I think probably the same pertains to materialism. Um, some people would think this. I think they used to think it more. Relation to the sustainability argument, I'm hoping they're going to think about it more uh, again in the future. But to be true to the ethnographic findings, um, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a particularly significant factor that at least was expressed by people. They, and for one thing, they have a lot of genes. Um, they're not, if they had, you know, in a sense it would be more um, evident if they just had, like we had, the one pair of genes that you wore to death. Um, they may have six or eight pairs of genes, um, including the, the fashion ones and the, they, and the ones they wear to party and then the ordinary ones that they just kind of wear every day. So probably not as much as one would like. Oh, that's live. Um, thank you very much for an absolutely stunning performance. And thank you, everyone, for all your questions. Um, there's actually a reception at the, um, the atrium in the old building, um, to which you're all invited for a drink. Um, and there's some copies of... What, what did we decide? Uh, consumption and consequences. Um, on sale in the lobby, which Danny can, um, can sign over a drink. So thanks very much.